Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message. If you have your Bibles, would you join me in the Gospel of John in chapter 17? The Gospel of John in chapter 17, as today we look at Jesus and we catch a glimpse of his heart in the Lord's Prayer. The ministry of Jesus on earth is remarkably filled with prayer. Reading through his life in the New Testament, it is amazing to see him so persistent in prayer. The one and only Son of God, perfect, without sin, blemish, or anything wrong, the perfect Son of God in his ministry on earth was always in prayer. His ministry, his life was drenched in prayer. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 21, when Jesus is being baptized, do you know what Jesus is doing as he's being baptized? He's praying. While he's preaching in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 16, what is Jesus doing even as he is preaching? He is praying before choosing the 12, feeding the 5,000, and then again feeding the 4,000, he's praying. When he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, shortly before, before being transfigured, Jesus is praying. Before raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is praying. Facing the cross in the garden, Jesus is praying. Hanging on the cross, taking his last breath. Jesus is using his last energy, his last exhale from his body, are words to the Father, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. The life of Jesus is, has and carries with it this great theme of prayer. And yet prayer, so often for believers today, takes a back seat. Prayer is not a priority. It is a last resort. And it has become my prayer for us as a church. It has become my prayer for me personally that we would be people of prayer. God, make First Baptist Church of West Memphis, make our fellowship a fellowship of men and women, boys and girls, who are defined by prayer. Now you may say, Josh, don't pray that over us because terrible circumstances may happen in our life. God may have to bring about difficult circumstances to cause us to be people of prayer. And I say, Lord, whatever it takes, make us men and women of prayer. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is praying in public, in private. Early in the morning, he wakes up and he prays. Late in the evening, after sending the disciples away, Jesus goes out to a desolate place. And he doesn't lay down to take a nap or sleep. Jesus goes out to a desolate place and he prays. 
of all his recorded prayers, perhaps there are none that strike us as beautiful as the prayer that we will begin to study today and we'll study over the next three weeks as we look at what is often referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Having invested his last moments in ministry on this earth into his disciples, teaching them from the the upper room all the way now to the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has been teaching them, investing in them, and now all of his teaching on earth before the cross is complete, and he ends it with these most glorious and beautiful words recorded for us in John chapter 17. Read with me now verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I acknowledge to you today my own weaknesses and inability to bring before your people the glory and wonder of the truth presented in your word today. So, Father, I ask for the assistance and for the lead of the helper that you promised, the Holy Spirit, to speak to your people here today. Father, that all those who are lost within the sound of my voice would come underneath conviction of their sin and they would see the beauty of Jesus and repent of their sins and turn to you and that the saved would be drawn closer to you. And I'll be very careful, Lord, to give you all the praise, honor, and glory for all that you do here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the point of our passage today and the point of this prayer in John chapter 17 is not to teach us how to pray. Jesus has many teachings throughout the New Testament in which he taught his people how to pray. Perhaps you may go to Matthew chapter 6 in verses 9 through 13, and you may read the model prayer that God gave for his disciples. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He gave them great examples of how not to pray. See that man standing over there, proud with his chest stuck out and thanking God that he is not like this tax collector over there? That's not how you pray. You don't pray to be seen by others. You don't pray uh, these long-winded prayers so that others might look at you and say, wow, he's really something. You say, rather, pray like this tax collector off to the side who's beating his chest and saying, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Have mercy on me. Jesus has taught us all throughout the New Testament how we are to pray. So today's passage and the next two weeks are not about us learning how we ought to pray. Although certainly we can glean things from this passage to apply to our own prayer lives, there are things that Jesus will say in our passage, especially today, that you and I cannot utter. 
Jesus will say to the Father, I've done everything precisely the way that you've commanded me to do then. We can't say that. We've fumbled the ball more times than we've ever uh, gained a yard. We have, we have failed tremendously, and yet Jesus is able to say, Lord, I've accomplished all that you have sent for me to accomplish. We can't say that. This is not a model prayer for us, but rather this is for us a snapshot of the heart of Jesus. We can look into this passage and we can see the heart of our Savior and we can be drawn closer to him. And that's the goal of each and every message that, that I preach, certainly, is that we might get a closer glimpse of Jesus and might be drawn closer to him. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 1, I want you to notice the posture of his prayer. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, as he's completed his teaching to the disciples... He lifted up his eyes to heaven. I want you to notice, first of all, the posture of Christ's prayer, a posture of confidence. Now, some of you scholars and students of the Bible may say, Josh, you may be stretching a little bit here on your point today, but what I would like to point out to you today is that Jesus here is taking a posture of confidence now, there is, of course, no specific physical posture which we must take when we pray. There's no way that we must contort our bodies. It's not, the Bible doesn't tell us that physically we have to lay down on the ground or fall in a certain direction. As a matter of fact, the Scripture gives us a variety of ways that we ought to pray in our physical postures. The Scripture rather focuses on the inward part, the heart. What is our, the posture of our heart? But we're commanded to pr pray without ceasing. So it stands to reason that we pray while we're driving. We pray while we're standing. We pray uh, in a variety of different ways and physical postures. But what has become very prominent for us is when we pray, we take the posture of heads bowed, eyes closed. Now, you won't necessarily find uh, the Scripture explicitly telling us to pray like that, but we pray like that for two main reasons. Number one, it's for uh, to eliminate distraction. Some of you uh, have the same issues that I have, okay? You have, maybe you have ADD, you have an attention problem, and if we were to pray just with our eyes open, which you can do that, there's nothing in the Scripture that says that you cannot do that, but for many of us, we have our eyes open, we become distracted, Okay? Our eyes go back and forth. Our eyes come off of God. When we close our eyes, it's in, the, it's in an effort to concentrate just on Him. It just being Him and us as we speak. But not only do we do that to prevent from distraction, but we do that really out of an act of humility. We acknowledge who we are. We know who we are. While we may be clothed in the riches of Jesus, while we may have our sin having been taken from us, we are still very much aware that we are imperfect people. And so when we come before him, so many times we do so out of reverence by closing our eyes, bowing our heads out of humility. Though we can come before him boldly, we still are reminded of who we are. And yet here is Jesus with full confidence and assurance. 
As we'll see in a moment, he's accomplished all that his father has sent him to do. And he takes upon himself in this prayer a posture of confidence. There's no shame that exists between him and the father. There's no conflict or issues separating the two. It is only a confidence of fellowship. And it's precisely because Jesus is able to approach his father boldly that we are ever able to do the same thing as well. You know, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 that we are able to approach God's throne with boldness. Imagine that. You know what you have done this past week. You know the sins you have committed this morning. And yet, we are able to approach the throne of grace with boldness because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Why are you able to do that? Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has accomplished, what he's about to accomplish out of our passage today and in the coming weeks, as we will see in the Gospel of John. Jesus assumes a posture of confidence raising his eyes to heaven, almost as if to make eye contact with the Father in this prayer. It is a posture of confidence and trust. Jesus has entrusted all of the coming events into the Father's hands. He knows what's coming. The cross, the beatings, the pain. And yet, what is his posture? It is one of confidence and trust. Father, I've placed all this into your hands. In verse 1, we see the posture of his prayer. But also in verse 1, as he begins to speak, I want you to see the priority of his prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. Now all throughout the gospel of John, we've been hearing about this hour. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. The hour is near. The hour is at hand. And now Jesus says, the hour is here. Jesus is at the center of the story of mankind. I bet you, you thought you were the center of the story of mankind. We often think that we are the center of, of, of all things, but Jesus here truly is at the center of the story of mankind. Everything that has happened in all of creation prior to this moment has been leading up to this. Everything that happens will be looking back to this moment of Jesus on the cross and of his resurrection. Jesus is on center stage. His disciples will soon abandon him. The nation that he has come to save and be king of will condemn him. The nations of the world will crucify him. He's the lead actor on the stage. And everyone else is fading into the background. The spotlight is his. And what does he do with it? What does Jesus do with this spotlight that has been placed on him? What does he do with the spotlight? I think the first thing I want to say is that we would squander that moment. We would squander the spotlight. It's what we've been doing from day one. Uh, 
when Facebook first came out and I was first introduced to Facebook, I got on, I, I logged on, I was trying to figure out all these things and how social media works and it came out right after maybe I was in high school or something like that. And it said you put your name in it and then you put a short bio. What's one sentence you want to say about yourself? And I put Josh Hall, <laughs> this is how ignorant I I said Josh Hall and then my short bio, disappointing people since 1986. There's one thing that you can count on with Josh Hall is that I'm going to wind up disappointing you at some point. We always squander the opportunities given to us. Since the Garden of Eden, that's what we have been doing. Or perhaps we would use the spotlight to build our own brand, to build up our own name, to shine the light more on us. But what does Jesus do? He uses this spotlight that's been placed on him. He uses this spotlight to shine the glory back upon his Father. What does he say in our passage today? Father... The hour has come. The spotlight is on me. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus wants all eyes to move to his father. He wants his father to receive the glory. The glory. Glorify me, Jesus says, so that in my life I may glorify you. Is it any wonder he is the one and only beloved Son of God. Is it any wonder Jesus pointing the spotlight back to the Father? But we really see this unpacked more as we see not only what does he do with the spotlight, but what is the spotlight? What is this hour of his glory? If you and I were to want to show our glory to everyone else, if we were want to tout our abilities or show or put on display what all that we can do, we would pick a variety of ways to do that. But Jesus chooses this unique way. The Father has planned this unique way to place his display glory on display for all mankind the cross he displayed his greatness to us by embracing our lowliness jesus displays the glory of the father his heaviness his brightness his brilliance he displays that to us his greatness by assuming and taking upon our lowliness. Of all the displays of the power of the glory of God, I suppose that none display it as well and as vividly as the cross. Perhaps one day in heaven, you and I may be able to look back on how things came to be. We've read it, but perhaps we would be able to see in heaven that moment when God first spoke light into existence. Perhaps we may be able to see... Uh, that moment that he spoke life into existence and he separated the waters from the land, when he first created the animals, perhaps we may see his glory on display as the moon and stars are set into place. Perhaps when we're in heaven, we may be able to look and see with our own eyes 
the ark afloat on top of the waters over the whole earth. Or we may be able to see the Red Sea parted as the Israelites passed across. But my friends, you will never see a more prominent display of the glory of God than when you look to the cross. The cross puts on full display the power and might of God as he puts to death, death. As he puts away sin, as he conquers this world, the principalities of this world. What is this spotlight? It's the cross. Jesus displays his glory in this prayer. The priority of this prayer is what? It's God's glory. Father, glorify me. Glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. Thirdly, I want you to see the purpose of his prayer. The purpose of Christ's prayer. In verses 2 through 3, he says, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. You, since, verse 2, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice the purpose of this prayer. Much will be said in the coming weeks as we look at Jesus praying for his disciples and that Jesus praying for the church. But here at the very beginning, he states not only his priority, which is God's glory, but his purpose. My purpose is that, Father, you would receive glory by my uh, making provision for salvation for those who will repent and believe, for those whom you have set aside from the beginning of time. The Bible says here, Lord, you have given me authority over all flesh. Which makes his ministry on earth all the more glorious. He's been given all authority. You know, when the devil came to tempt Jesus and said, I will give you all of the kingdoms of all. I mean, I, I would, it's a good thing. I mean, I w- I'm a smart aleck. I would have smarted back. All right, it's already mine. It's already mine. What are you talking about? It's not yours. You can't give it. It's mine. That's not the way Jesus responds. Jesus has been given authority over all things. Jesus will say so after his resurrection. When he, before he ascends to the Father, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven on, and on earth. But here specifically, the authority has been given for Jesus to extend eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. This authority has been given to him to offer for us eternal life, which just again reminds us that there is eternal life in no other name. You cannot be saved or work your way into heaven. All religions do not lead to heaven. All paths do not lead to him. If you're basically good, you don't just get there. He doesn't just consider that, well, you know, you're basically good. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the only avenue into heaven is through the name of Jesus. Jesus says, you have given me authority to give eternal life to all whom you have chosen. And this is actual eternal life. Eternal life, he will go on to say, it's not intellectual knowledge about God. Verse 3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
What is eternal life? Is it pie in the sky by and by? Is it what you begin to experience after you take your last breath here? No, my friends, eternal life is equal parts quantity and equal parts quality. The eternal life that Jesus came to provide you with is not just merely life later, but it's eternal life right now. Right now, abundant, overflowing, quality life that he has come to give us. And it's all found in knowing Jesus. Knowing the Father. Not intellectual knowledge, heart knowledge. That we walk with him, that we talk with him, that we have a relationship with him. As we will see, that is eternal life. That's what it's all about. That God has invited us in to participate in this sweet fellowship that he, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been enjoying before anything was ever created in eternity past and will always enjoy together. We have been invited into that. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This eternal life is quality. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We have eternal life. So why is it that believers always have the poor, pitiful me's? I mean, it's all the time, you know, we'll be singing worship. I sit down here. You know why I sit down here. Number one, I sit down here. Uh, during worship service because I make weird faces as it is. Some of you take pictures while I'm preaching and it's always like mid, it looks like mid-seizure or something. I'm like, and I just was only like a mil- half fraction of a millisecond, okay? I sit down there for that, but I also sit down because when I'm worshiping God, I don't want to be distracted by looking out and thinking, man, am I the only one who's happy about this? You know, sometimes we'll say, put a smile on your face, put a smile. Listen, We've been given eternal life right now. We don't have to worry about the circumstances that go on in our world. We know that God is working out all things for his glory and our good. We know how the book ends. My friends, that is eternal life meant to be enjoyed right now. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus says that life is in knowing him. And it's not just quality, it is quantity. It is a life that never ends. It is a life that it began in your heart when you repented of your sins and followed Jesus as Lord and Savior. But it's a life that never ends, that will one day be truly realized when we're free from this flesh and from sin which so easily entangles us and we're in his presence forever and ever. Now notice what Jesus says here. He says not only that he uh, has the right priority, not only is his priority for the glory of God, but his purpose in this prayer is a purpose that God would receive glory from his extending eternal life out towards us. We've seen the posture, the priority, the purpose continue with me as we see now the premise of Christ's prayer in verse 4. The premise in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you have given me to do. 
the premise of this prayer, of his right standing, is that Jesus has accomplished every single thing the Father had given him to do perfectly, without fail. The exact right way. And we've lost what this means because we're, we're autonomous people. We're independent people. But we ought to be reminded that one day every man, woman, boy, and girl will stand before the judgment seat of God and will give an account for what they have done. Every single one. God has designed this world for us. He has designed us And he has set parameters and given us his word and his law. And we ought to live up to it perfectly. We are the ones who failed. He has no obligation to give us salvation. He has no obligation to extend to us grace or mercy. We were the ones who messed up and are still doing it. You and I don't deserve a second chance, a third chance. All we do is squander it anyway. But... The reason Jesus says all these things, the, his uh, deity on full display is that he does everything, every single thing perfectly. Now, I look at my life and I think, man, I'm a far way off from that. Even if I do say the right thing, it seems like I say it the wrong way every time. There's always some sin in present in my life, some bad motivation present there. And yet Jesus, every single thing he did pleased the father. Jesus says, I've accomplished everything you've set me out to do. The premise of his prayer. Now, finally, I want you to see the promise. That is what Jesus is awaiting, what he's longing for. The promise of his prayer, verse five. And now father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus wasn't just born and laid in a manger in Bethlehem. That's not when Jesus first came into existence. He has always existed, always will exist. And before time began, he enjoyed that sweet, beautiful fellowship with the Father. And Jesus is now saying, Lord, after my suffering, after I have accomplished all that you have sent me here to accomplish, Lord, glorify me in your own presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. His mission to provide salvation by his sacrifice is coming to its climax and then its close. And he is praying, Lord, that he'd be reunited with the Father. And it's because of him being reunited with the Father that we can be united with him in the first place. Forever. I mean, we imagine what heaven may be like. And funerals are rife with, with maybe, uh, maybe bad imaginations of what we think heaven may be like. But there's one thing for sure about heaven. It's who is there. The Father has invited us in to this fellowship that has existed long before we were ever created. And Jesus is saying, I long to be back with you. 
And then eventually when my and our people are all back together, when that we're all together with one another forever and ever in that place where there are no tears, there is no fear, there is no death, there is no sickness, there is no pain. Jesus is saying, I long to be back in this place. We look at this prayer, just the first few words, just the first few sentences, and we see this glory in Jesus. That being given all authority, what does he do with it? You go to Philippians chapter 2. What does Jesus do? Having been given all of these things, he empties himself. And he takes on the form of a servant. My friends, if he's not worthy of serving, I don't know who he is. If he's not worthy of giving up your life, uh, repenting of your sins and following him, I don't know who he is. You're not worthy to follow yourself. You can't ensure your own destination. He is worthy. When I look at these first few words of this glorious prayer, I see within Jesus beauty worth following. Beauty worth adoring right now in this moment, not just at church, but as you leave this place to set your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Thank you for listening to First Importance. It is our prayer that you have been blessed by this podcast. We welcome you to join us in person for worship at First Baptist West Memphis on Sundays at 1045 a.m., where our desire is to love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.